Sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody is to create a space where they can express themselves the way they feel comfortable and not be judged for that, not be stereotyped or, you know, characterized for the way they choose to express themselves. I'm Susan McDowell. I'm Ayushi Roy. And you're listening to The Move. Public engagements just sound boring. Yeah, it sounds that way, and yet we know They're not. It's not. It's <laughs> dynamic. It's full of drama. It has pain and emotion in it. Oh, boy. High stakes. Mm-hmm. You know, and what happens, particularly in planning processes, how the public can get, is engaged or included makes a big difference on the quality of what life is like for the public in the city. And so today, somebody who knows that up close and personal. Up close and personal. Is Wendell Joseph, who's uh, our guest today, city planner here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And let me tell you, that could not be an easy job. There's a lot going on in this city with development. It is, you know, gentrification par excellence in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's on the front lines of that, having to deal with the tensions, the struggles that people have, and also trying to make sure people stay engaged. Mm-hmm. So here's window. There's so much emotion mm. in public meetings. People feel strongly about what cities do, right? Especially when they don't like what cities do, right? Which is fine, which is fair. I mean, people shouldn't agree with everything, right? But then whenever that process happens and that public engagement piece is underway, people tend to bring all that stuff in with them from the last thing and the thing before that. And the thing we did 20 years ago, it was like, oh, where are we on that? You see what I'm saying? And it's like, oh, you want to talk about something else, but we still have (laughs) some things we need to say about the last thing. And it puts so much pressure and drama in these processes because of that fact. And I'd like to think that there's a way to work around that by having that ongoing relationship, by having a public engagement process verb that exists apart from processes, Mm. right? So that you have that ongoing dialogue, that back and forth, so that when you do have a project, Mm -hmm. you've already have a a relationship established. You've already hopefully built up a a level of trust and transparency. And I think it kind of like takes back some of the uh, the pressure. So, because it's not just on that particular process. So that's just one one way I think about it. That also kind of connects to one of the things we've been highlighting, both as part of this show and on our site, is this whole notion of having the need to really be intentional about designing mm-hmm. for healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've part of what you mentioned is people bring a lot when they come to the meetings. They yeah. bring everything that's happened to them before, and they needed to work exactly. out, and they haven't had a space to work it out. Exactly. And they're looking for some way of having that paid attention to. Yeah. And yeah. This idea that we might need to actually create some spaces in these public processes to help people heal from those traumas. I think it's fundamental to just human existence just to be able to, like, vent sometimes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like sometimes you just need to blow some steam and just get some off your chest. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I think people should be allowed to do that. I think, at least personally for me, if somebody feels some type of way about a project that a city does or, a, you know, a particular process— I mean, you should be able to just say, listen, I don't like this at all, and here's why. And that's a good thing, I think, because then on the one hand, you you want people to feel like their voice does matter. You want people to have faith in the processes. You want people to buy in 
to what's happening. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that people have to agree with everything that's going on, but I think people should at least know how you got from point A to point B. I love that so much. I'm just, I'm still like musing about what you said because it reminds me so much. It's so tongue in cheek of, I speak for even my former self as a member of another city hall to keep talking about relationships and relationship building, but never really to practice what we're preaching on the outside of city hall. You know, inside we know that to be true, but the very wording of public engagement implies that there is an engagement that needs to happen as opposed to a relationship that needs to just be nurtured, Mm. right? And I really like what you said about the process, engagement process, as opposed to the processes involved in the engagement. But I'm taking it even just a step behind that and just like, let's just call it a public relationship or a public partnership or a public collaboration, co-creation, as opposed to a public engagement. And what that's really doing then is healing the wounds that I think inevitably any city might have mm-hmm. with their constituents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think even just changing the name, I think, does convey a different type of, right. of message. And you're right. right. I mean, there, there are wounds that need to be healed on both sides, both totally. in terms of like oh, yeah. city with a capital C and city with a lowercase c. Yep. And for me, I see there's enough benefits on both sides of the table for this to really be a thing that cities engage in. Mm-hmm. It works both ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you find yourself ever filling in the gaps of these public wounds through personal conversations that you might have? You know, you stay back after a meeting ends and you keep talking to some of the the folks that came through for this public meeting or you mentioned the other division that has translators. Mm-hmm. And the other department, yeah. Right, yeah. the other department. Do you ever find yourself filling in the gaps Beyond the meetings? That's a good question. I would say yes. I wouldn't say it's necessarily every meeting, mm-hmm. but I mean, now that I think, you know, I've never really thought about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there are opportunities to do that kind of work without even realizing it by mm-hmm. just having that one on one connection with somebody and just talking as two people. And you just happen to be a, a city official or an employee, and they just happen to be a citizen or a resident. But when you do have those, you know, one-on-one conversations, either before or, like, after a meeting, yeah, it does, I think, create an opportunity for people to, I guess, come to terms, right? To yeah. To better understand each other. Or and to be able to vent even, maybe. Or vent, yeah, yeah. And I think this is something that I try to do more, just in my personal life, mm-hmm. not, not just professional, but understanding that people, like I mentioned earlier, people need to vent. And sometimes the best thing you do for somebody is to create a space where they can express themselves the way they feel comfortable and not be judged for that, not be stereotyped or, you know, characterized for the way they choose to express themselves. And so I I try to be mindful of that, especially more recently is like if I'm having one-on-one interaction with somebody, I try to encourage them to just be honest and just say what's on their mind and not take it personally, Right not internalize it, but just understand that, you know, there's probably a lot that's behind that sentiment that has nothing to do with me that I have no idea of and probably never right. will and don't need to. Right. What's important in that moment is for somebody to just say what's on their chest, say with their chest, so to speak. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, it's really, one of the things I love about this is 
As we started out this whole effort we we're doing where we've been working off of this framework, right? And it has all these different design challenges, yeah. you know, everything from design for the margins to designing for equity and designing for healing, as you mentioned before. But actually, what you just said made me really rethink one of them. Like, we have this one about designing for multiple forms of expression, mm. which we've always talked about in terms of language, or people are more like to express more through their body, or exactly. they're more interactive. Exactly. But, you know, this idea that venting is a form of expression. Absolutely. And the notion of actually designing public spaces Ooh. and opportunities that just support people to vent right. mm-hmm. is a really powerful idea. Right. You know? Right. And redefining what we see as, like, productive conversation with the public. Yeah. Because I think sometimes we see things like venting as not being productive. Exactly. You know, like, oh, if we're not really collaborating on this different legislation, like, that really can't. But no, actually, I think you kind of need the venting spaces, the spaces to be designed for venting or spaces to be designed for just listening and being a supportive listener. And, And I think that's why it's so important to think of alternative forms of public engagement just to keep that term going outside (laughs) of just the traditional public meeting, right? Because if you think about how public meetings typically go, forms of expression are very limited, if not sanitized, right? You have Mm. a certain period for public comments and you get such and such minutes. You say this and you say say your name and your address and you say what's on your mind. Next, Mm -hmm. same thing. Next, right? So it's a very constrained Mm -hmm. form of expression, right? Mm -hmm. Now that works for some people and it works fine and that's great. That doesn't work for some people, right? Other people, rather. And so how do you tap into that? First of all, you have to understand mm-hmm. that there's still value in those alternative forms of expression, right? And that's part of the problem. It's a form of privilege, really, to just say that these forms of expression have more value than those forms of expression. And it inherently devalues alternative forms of expression, right? Because there either aren't forums for those forms of expression, or when they are expressed in those type of ways, they're just shut down and it's like, no, 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 this, that, and the other, right? So yeah, thinking about just the spaces to have those alternative forms of expression and then allowing people to do that without Shutting it down, I think, is key. As you mentioned, like some people are just super animated. Some some people just, you know, they, they get hype, you know. Yeah. Some people use profanity. Some people use language that's not typically okay in a public setting. And I mean, so long as you're not disrespecting somebody or dehumanizing somebody or using, you know, inappropriate language, whether it's a slur or, a, you know, I think there is some value in, in realizing that how people choose to express themselves should not take away from what they have to say. Mm-hmm. If everybody has value, then everybody's voice mm-hmm. has value. And that should not be constrained to just one or two ways of expressing that. Mm, love that. One of the issues I think we have, too, in the society is that people like you, you know, who are in these positions in city governments or nonprofit organizations who are usually at the front lines of this, themselves haven't had much opportunity exactly. to express themselves in all the ways they have. And exactly. Like, you know, your own training and your own preparation basically narrows the field of what's appropriate for expression. Mm-hmm. So part of what I hear you're saying, that there's kind of like a whole lot of individual and internal work we have to do to both allow ourselves to know that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be some sort of a training, per yeah. se. Because I think people understand this on, a, on an individual level. I think it's just... Mm-hmm taking those principles and just extending it to the public forum. But it's, it's scary, isn't it? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's scary. Absolutely. It's, like, it's like, okay, you stand up and shout, 
Ayusha stands up and shouts, okay? Those are two different messages. Very, different, very messages. different messages. <laughs> They're very different messages, <laughs> exactly, right? You know, one of them is going to be like, oh, okay. And another right. be, oh, no. Exactly. Right? And that's, that's, that, that's, <laughs> why, that's why it starts, before you even get that far, that's why it starts with understanding that people have value and their voices have value. Yeah. Equal value. And unless you start there, then you're still going to run into problems, right? Because I'm still going to come across as the angry black man, mm-hmm. right? And then automatically mm-hmm. what I have to say doesn't matter or mm-hmm. it matters less, right? Mm-hmm. But then if you understand that as a black man, I do have value and my voice has value, then however way I choose to express it should not matter as much. Right. So yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough one. It it's, is. It's a very tough one. It right? is because it forces people to step outside of their comfort zones. It forces you to see somebody as an equal, which as a society we just cannot seem to do. Certain voices fundamentally have more weight and more importance than others. So we have this culture of stratifying voices. And so doing that forces you, forces you to, it levels the playing field, which for some people is extremely uncomfortable. So I teach in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Do you mm-hmm. think I should actually start doing like exercises in my classes? This gives people opportunities to just like say like, okay, you express that one way. Let me have you do it another way. You could you could give exercises or you can just walk into class one day and just bug out for no reason and just see how your <laughs> see how your students respond. Okay, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do it. Just that. walk in and just just just, <laughs> just bug wild out. out. Just wild out for like a good thirty minutes straight and just see what happens. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> you want to be my guest lecturer? That's right? really <laughs> That's really cool. And wild out for us. That would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. But we yeah. don't have, as you're saying, we don't have the experience. Exactly. We have the opportunities to kind of yeah. sit with that and be okay with it and know that it's not going to kill us. Yeah. That it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And we're going to be fine. Yeah. And so therefore we would be, if we knew that, we'd create more spaces and opportunity for that. Yes. I think so. I think so. For people that may not know how to create that space and that opportunity, what's something that you feel like you might be able to share with them? Because I'm just thinking, right? Like, thinking out loud, what you said about you sitting up and shouting and me standing up and shouting is so different. And for everyone in this room, I think that's pretty obvious and pretty apparent. But that may not be for a lot of people in a lot of other rooms. And so what's something that we could do to help those other rooms? I'm totally putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you, you can say like, that's a really good question and we should have an answer to it out there in the world somewhere. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that is a good question. I mean, I think it very much starts with an internal conversation, a personal conversation that recognizes that people have a voice and that people have value and that they need to be allowed to express that because it's fundamental to their humanity. So before we talk about the space to do that, the ways in which we do that, I think it really starts on an individual level. And it's, okay, what am I going to do to acknowledge the humanity of every single person I come in contact with? And then if everybody can at least start to have that conversation, you don't need to come to an answer. Mm -hmm. But if you can at least start to have that conversation, if you can at least open up your heart and your mind Mm -hmm. to that concept I think that already puts us in a much better place than we are right now. Yeah. Because there are too many people who are not having that conversation, who are not even open to the concept of recognizing everyone's humanity. Yeah. That's how I would add to that question. Yeah. Well, what's really centering about this conversation, because we've been talking a lot 
you know, with you, with other guests on our site and the move about these kinds of types of conversations you should be having and how to design for those. But part of what you're raising is actually there's a prior piece. Mm-hmm. And the prior piece is really are you coming from a set of values exactly. that actually allow you to see people as having value. Absolutely. And if, Absolutely. And if you haven't gotten that, then all these design things aren't going to help very much. Mm-hmm. Because I guess in some sense you'll sabotage them mm-hmm. because you actually don't believe in the value exactly. of everyone. And something that I've recently thought about, or at least a way to describe this kind of stuff, is to think of it as establishing a sort of baseline. And so when you have a baseline, that's like the norm, right? That's the point of reference. That's the starting point. It's zero. And whatever design case or design scenario that you can come up with is what's going to be compared to that baseline, right? So regardless of how great a design you have, regardless of how great an idea you can come up with, so long as the baseline remains what it is, you're always going to have a problem with the design. And so I think that's where we find ourselves now. People are trying to come up with all these creative and great ways of having public engagement and public input. And in a vacuum, these are fantastic ideas. However... The baseline has remained the same. And the baseline is one that's mired in, in racism, in classism, in, you know, economic terrorism, if you will, in gender biases, in, yeah. you know, diminishing voices of immigrants, of refugees, of LBGQ. You know what I mean? Like, there's, the baseline is not what it ought to be. And so until you shift the baseline to something that is closer to what it ought to be, if not the actual thing— then every design case you come up with is still going to have the same issue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you come at it from a set of values, and the values are that, you know, recognizing everyone's humanity, period. That should be the baseline. And then whatever design case you have will be compared to that baseline of equal humanity. And that fundamentally changes the game. And I think part of how we tried to get at that, though we didn't have necessarily a, a values question in there, is this whole, what we say is our fundamental principle is that you have to design with and for people at the margins. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, folks at the margins will hold their own value. Right. And if right. you engage with them first as a way of kind of designing something, that's one way to to help people get there. But I, I think this idea of really saying, but folks have to do that other piece too, is really absolutely important. Absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting to think about the amount of prior work that goes into then the workplace work Mm-hmm. <laughs> being equitable or for the margins, et cetera. And I'm thinking about the constant sort of day-to-day opposition that I imagine you might have to or other folks I know I had to go through when doing my work for City Hall. Because sometimes I found that the structures within which I was required to work were not amenable to that personal baseline. Of course. Right? Because they're built upon this different kind of baseline (laughs) with a different kind of value. Exactly. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the sort of maybe stickiest, trickiest things that you've seen? I mean, one thing that I mentioned (laughs) or that I heard you say was the way in which public commentary is structured by time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Time and place. Time and place. Place is a big one, right? Time and Mm -hmm. place. And thinking about where those places are what the building even looks like. Ah, yeah, that's a, you good know? One. that's a good one. That's a good one. Like, yeah. I'm coming from California where I haven't seen as much brick 
before. I haven't seen as many like <laughs> columns before, frankly. Yeah. And walking into a building that sometimes looks a little neo-colonial makes me feel a certain kind of way. Yeah, they're uh, intimidating. They're intimidating. And I'm like, well, this place isn't meant for me and my commentary. In mm-hmm. fact, this place makes me feel perhaps a little unsafe, perhaps a little unwanted. And that intimidation factor might change the way that I comment. Right. The time factor mm-hmm. in which I'm required to comment might change that. Who's listening? Mm-hmm. The makeup of the room racially mm-hmm. or demographically otherwise. you know. And I'm just thinking, like, what are some of the stickiest baselines that you found in your work that have forced you to work around what you value? I guess for me, I'd say that when people do not recognize the baseline for what it is, or don't acknowledge it, or just try to like, you know, downplay it, or not fully appreciating and acknowledging the baseline for what it is creates sticky situations. Mm. Because it doesn't put you in a position then to question the processes. Mm. And so you just do what's been done before because it's worked, quote unquote. But you don't really stop to ask questions. And I am speaking generally, not necessarily in terms of a specific thing that I do, But just generally speaking, I think it's something that I see everywhere, anywhere, really. I think one thing that we are good at doing, you know, as human beings is creating systems that can basically run themselves, right? Um, (laughs) The the people change, time changes, but you can count on this one thing doing what it's done for like 100 years. Over again. Yeah, Yeah. we're we're very, very, very good at that. And it's it's crazy because like every social movement— in the history of mankind has always been about that baseline. Yeah. You know, whether it's the, you know, women's suffrage movement of the early 1900s or, you know, civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s or LGBTQ or most recently Me Too or even March for Our Lives, mm-hmm. right? It's always about questioning that baseline and pushing back. That's what it's always been about. And, and the, the stickiest situations you'll always find no matter where you work, no matter where you live, no matter where you do whatever you do is people not acknowledging the baseline that is fundamentally mm. problematic and inhumane. Mm. That's where it starts. That is the work, man. That is the that, work. That is the work. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate this. You know, we come in here to the move, which we've always talked about, you know, all the different moves we have to do within the context of really building democracy and really creating opportunities for voice. And this notion that one of the moves we all learn is the workaround. Yeah. Work around is a yeah. move, right? Is, yeah. We learn it, and we have to figure out our different ways of doing it. And one of the things I've known in my own life that's made that possible and helped me, and it's curious because, you know, we're, we're of different generations. We work in different spaces. Mm-hmm. What's the network like? Do you guys have a, a network that actually supports you and strengthens you through this work? Are you kind of like mostly, hey, there's just the two or three of us trying to tread water here? The pieces, the individual parts of the network are out there, very much so. It's bringing that thing together to actually create the network that is challenging and takes time. I've met like-minded individuals who are trying to think of creative ways to work in the system, with the system, around the system, apart from the system, that always tries to keep questioning or at least call to the table, the baseline. Mm -hmm. I've met individuals who are like-minded in that regard. I've I've had conversations with them, one-on-one conversations, right? And it's been great. And sometimes it is enough to know that you're not the only one. Mm. Even if you're not in the relationship, just like knowing that there's other out there. Even if it's just that one conversation and for whatever reason you never see that person again, just knowing that you're not alone, I think very much helps and it keeps you going for at least like another week or a month. 
until the next conversation happens. Right. So we need the networks. We need people coming together and really hashing these things out, bouncing ideas off of each other. But, you know, those lifelines, I think, are also absolutely critical. I've been fortunate enough to have those lifelines. And, you know, hopefully a network can come together that I'm you know, a part of, which actually can get some things done. So as we come to a close, there's actually one thing we kind of like try to always ask our guests is, there are really two parts of the question, but I want to answer the first part for you. Uh, oh, you don't even have to so give you a little bit of break. But one of the parts we ask you, you know, we always like to say, and actually you can edit me back, uh, is you know, we talk about these notions about, like we said, the moves. You know, what are the moves that people are doing really that are improving democracy, really doing this work? And we always ask this question, like, well, what's the move you feel you've mastered? And as I listen to you, like, you've really mastered this one of, of really staying clear on the primary issue. Right. And the primary issue here is, is really around this form of expression, that people have to be free to express themselves the way they can. And we have to design for that. And if we do that, we're on the right track. And it seems like something you've really kind of mastered. My edit would be that I've not mastered it. <laughs> You're not mastered it. Because that was going to be the second question. It's like, where's the space? Where's the move that you feel like, God, I need, I need to work on that one? Yeah, I've far from mastered it. Because I think it's something that you just have to continuously chase, uh-huh. only to never have caught it. And I think that's a good place to be. Because times change, contexts shift. And so allow yourself to be flexible. Change is the only constant. You have to Put yourself in a position to constantly be open to change. So I wouldn't, yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that I've, I've mastered that, but I try to just be very, 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 very mindful of it. That's kind of like how I check myself. Again, valuing that person, valuing what they have to say, even if it comes across a little, ooh, right? Even if I feel some type of way is understanding that, it, again, it may not be personal. It's not necessarily directed at me. There's so much behind that. So, yeah, I just try to keep that in the forefront of my thinking. It's great. Wendell, I really want to thank you for jumping in here and being oh, with us. Thank it's, you so much. It's, it's so amazing. good to know like we have someone like you out there on the front Absolutely. lines of democracy we, making we the world here. possible. We, we <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, it's, it's great. It's absolutely great. Yeah, no, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to be here and talk to you guys. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to do that. Thank You're you very much. incredible work. Oh, wow. Thank you keep so much. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping keep on. Keep finding a good fight, right? You're good for another week now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is my lifeline. <laughs> this is my lifeline. Thank you, Wendell. Thank you very much. Talking with Wendell was really a great way to get a solid practice-based understanding of what Design for Healing is about. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of our core principles. And one of the things we know that's true is that almost all of us are traumatized at some point in time by the way we've had to engage with the public Mm -hmm. at some point in time, right? Mm -hmm. And you go to these kind of public meetings and people show up in all kinds of different ways, right? And they're not working for the people who are in city governments. They're not working for the public. There's a lot of distrust and fear, and all of that creates, you know, real conditions for trauma. Mm. And the whole idea of designing for healing is to really think about the fact that you may have to create the opportunities in the spaces for people to actually heal Mm-hmm. as part of their engagement in the public. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that you know every public session has to turn into a therapy session. Right. It doesn't mean that. But it means that it has to recognize right, that the public is in lots of different places and are holding lots of different kinds of trauma of mm-hmm. how they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have some opportunity mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. both to show up the way they are mm-hmm. and then be guided through and supported through healing over that kind of trauma, things will never get better. But, you know, the problem, I think, with the word healing is that it implies some degree of me needing healing. It implies some degree of me not already being enough or whole just as I am right now. And I think that we already carry so much of our own weight, so much of our own experiences in the way that we know to be whole. It would be so beautiful to design for just the way that we are, as opposed to implying some need of some, yeah, some need of something new, some need of healing. I actually love that. And I think when I talk about this notion of designing for healing, certainly don't want to communicate, you know, we don't want to communicate this idea that somehow we need other people to make us whole. Right. That we walk in the door whole. Exactly. And maybe what needs to be healed is our ability to see each other mm. whole. Ooh. Right? Yes. That's what, yes. that's what the healing is around. That's what that space is for. But you're really right in saying, you know, the caution is don't think of people as coming in broken. Right. Think of them as whole the way they are. And they right. come in, you know, and that really connects a lot with what, you know, Wendell even said at the very beginning of the show about right. sometimes you just got to let people be who they are. Exactly. And I like that. It's kind of just being able to see the other person for the entirety of themselves instead of just the portion that is amenable to the work that day. I agree. So you got to design for healing. But in order to do that, you got to recognize the wholeness of everyone. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you all so much for listening. Catch us again next week. And in the meantime, you can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and at our website. All of them are at The Move MIT. Mm-hmm.